Associate Pastor of Forefront Church in Brooklyn. Today we're joined by Lisa Sharon Harper, the second guest in our Faith Culture Question series. She's an author, an activist, and we're excited to have her on our podcast today. And don't forget to join us for our third event with Brian McLaren on November 6th. Lisa is the head of Sojourners, a multimedia platform for faith and action for social justice. And she was the founding director of New York Faith and Justice. She has a new book out called The Very Good Gospel, and we're excited to have her on our podcast today. Now here's our conversation with Lisa. So I just finished reading your book, The Very Good Gospel, and I really enjoyed it. It was so insightful for me. Can you tell us a little bit more about the book? Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Well, The Very Good Gospel, um, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, uh, it was published this June. It came out June 7th. And actually, we did our launch event here in New York City with a coalition of churches and organizations. Really fun. And really excited to be back with you guys tonight. Uh, the, the book was actually inspired about 13 years ago wow. on a trip that I took. It wasn't even just a trip. It was really, truly a pilgrimage. It was a, an opportunity for, um, for staff at a, in a college ministry to begin to understand how the gospel it relates to and is integrated with the calls for justice, racial reconciliation, mm-hmm. gender justice, all of it, right? International justice. How are these values and things not just added baggage on the back mm-hmm. of the bus of discipleship. Mm-hmm. That's really what we were trying to investigate. Mm-hmm. And I went into it thinking, you know, I mean, I was the director of racial reconciliation, you know, for this for this group out in Los Angeles for the whole West Coast at that time. And or not West Coast, for all of Southern California. And and so I thought I knew something, but I got into that bus and we had investigated, really started in our orientation with the theological concept of shalom, mm-hmm. which I had not heard of before. And at the central concept for shalom is the reality that we are all interconnected, mm-hmm. that you can't say you have shalom over here when there is no shalom over here on the other side that if there is no shalom over here, then there's no shalom anywhere because we are all not only interconnected, but interdependent on mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. And it's not even just humans. It's it's humanity's relationship with God, with the rest of creation, with each other, with the way that things work, the systems that govern us, mm-hmm. um, that these are all relationships that God created in the very beginning in Genesis 1 and declared those relationships very good. Mm-hmm. And that the very goodness, actually, the way that it was characterized, that word good is tov. And tov actually means good, but it doesn't mean it in the way that we normally think of it. We normally think of tov as perf- or goodness in our thinking as something that exists inside the thing itself. Mm-hmm. The thing is good. Mm-hmm. That's how the Greeks understood goodness. But the Hebrews didn't understand it that way. They thought of goodness as existing between things. Yeah. So I got to thinking when I was studying that passage, well, what are the, what's the implication of this? That at the very end of, that, of the first day, or sorry, the, of the sixth day, God looks around and says, this is very good. Well, what God was saying was that the relationships between things mm-hmm. was very good. And that word very, me'od, is actually radical, forceful, vehement, you know, even some people could even argue violent, violently good. That's Mm -hmm. how good it was. Mm -hmm. So 
all those relationships I named before had that level of goodness in them. Mm-hmm. And then you go a little bit further back in that same day on the sixth day and you see, well, what does that goodness look like? It looks like all of humanity being made in the image of God and therefore having right. inherent dignity. And it looks like all of humanity, every last person on earth being created with the call and the capacity to exercise stewardship of the world. Mm-hmm. And so there are some implications there. You know, when we govern in a way that limits the capacity of human beings to exercise dominion through the fastest ways and the surest ways are poverty and oppression, then what we're really doing is we're limiting, we're squashing the image of God on earth. That's right. Because what it means to be made in the image of God is to be created with the call and the capacity to exercise dominion. That's so true. And even just, I'm thinking about my own journey when I became a Christian and just being told that I have to strive to be perfect, as perfect as God and live a perfect life like yes, Jesus. Yes. And it's not even about that. No, and, and this no. is what I loved so much about your book when you yeah. talked about relationships. And so it was no longer a me focused faith Mm-hmm. but a faith where it's outwards. How am I interacting with other people? And yeah. I love that so much. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, can you tell us what your journey was before you came to that conclusion? What, because you talked about how being a person of color affected you and how mm-hmm. you had to um, recapture the goodness of the gospel. Can you yeah. tell us more oh, about that? Okay, Ooh, I love this story too. This is literally, this for me literally was like a big turning point in my faith. And, and I love how you really, you kind of named the reality that you kind of thought that the goal of Christianity was to become perfect, to become perfect in yourself, mm-hmm. right? As Jesus is perfect, we're supposed to be perfect. But that's a misreading of that text. That's mm-hmm. Matthew 5, you know, mm-hmm. be, be perfect as your heavenly father in heaven is, is, is perfect. But that text is actually talking about loving your enemies. So what does it look like to be perfect? It looks like loving perfectly. Yeah. So, so go back to that text um, and also the journey that I was on because it really happened on the journey. I started the journey with one understanding of the good news of the gospel. My understanding came straight out of, you know, quite honestly, the four spiritual laws. I was a total, you know, all four years in Campus Crusade and, you know, I knew the four laws like the back of my hand. Mm-hmm. I could, in fact, I wrote little jingles about it because I knew it so well. <laughs> I'm not even kidding in, in, in you know, in college. I'm just I, you wouldn't want me to do it. You wouldn't want me to do it. I still know it, but no. <laughs> it's not that funny. I thought it was funny at the time, but no, not really. So, but no. So, so I knew them really well. And basically what they, what they say is, you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life, but you are sinful and therefore separated from God. But Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin. So if you just pray this little prayer at the back of this gold booklet and profess belief that Jesus died for your to pay the penalty for your sin, then you can go to heaven. I mean, we're all familiar with that, right? Mm-hmm. It's really kind yeah. of real basic, right? That's the most basic understanding of the gospel. Well, I, I go on this journey and basically we are we're rolling over the land where some of the most evil stuff happened in American history. We we retraced the Cherokee Trail of Tears mm-hmm. for two weeks. And my own family walked the trail. 
So my family on my mom's side has Cherokee Creek and Chickasaw heritage. Mm -hmm. And at least according to oral, oral tradition in our family, we walked the trail and escaped in Kentucky. We actually, on this journey, we stopped at Trail of Tears Park uh, in Hopkinsville, uh, Kentucky. And we believed, my mom and I believe that's where my ancestors actually escaped because in 1840, two years after the trail, they show up after never being there before on the census 50 miles like northeast of Hopkinsville Park. Wow. So we believe they, they left, they, they escaped, and they hid out under assumed identities. Wow. So, you know, 16,000 people were forced to walk. They, 4,000 of them died. They walked in snow because it was a blizzard that year and they were held outside in stockades for a year or two before they were allowed to even walk. It was inhumane. It was straight evil. Then we get on a bus and we go into the Deep South and we retrace the African experience in America from slavery through civil rights. Mm-hmm. And you know, my part, my family was on that journey too. My family was enslaved in South Carolina and Kentucky and Virginia. And I just got to thinking toward the end of this journey, could I share those four spiritual laws with my own ancestors and would they receive it as good news? Could I go up to them and I, could I say to Leah Ballard, who was the last uh, adult slave in our family, could I say to her, Leah, I know that you had five husbands because they kept getting killed or sold away. I know you had 17 children and you had many of them die because of exposure or because of violence. I know that you were probably raped and your mother was probably raped because you were you were listed as mulatto on the census. Mulatto meaning mixed white yeah. and black. I know that these things happened to you, but I have good news. God has a wonderful plan for your life, but you're sinful. <laughs> and so therefore you are separated from God. So, but Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. All you need to do is believe that and then you go to heaven. Would Leah Ballard, would Henry Lawrence, would they receive this as good news? Like would it make them jump and shout and go hallelujah? And I had to admit, no. And in fact, when I went, when I sought my own understanding of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ for for anything to say to my ancestors, I found that my gospel was mute. It had nothing to say. So that is really what propelled me on this 13 year journey um, in the scripture to understand the theological concept of Shalom and its implications in our world And the reality that God did actually say, we are all made in the image of God. And even at the time of its writing, I found, and this actually, no joke, led me to worship and weep in the middle of writing the book, in the middle of writing chapter two, when I realized that the writers of chapter one of Genesis, they believe most, many scholars, most scholars actually believe now that Genesis was written by four sets of authors and that one of those sets was a set of priests who were just 
exiting the Babylonian exile. And those, now I've always heard of, you guys have heard of the Babylonian exile before, right? It's like, that's the time when they were taken from Jerusalem and yeah, captured. I just thought, okay, they got picked up, they're carted, now they're in Babylon. But I really sat and thought about that. What was that like? There are passages in the Psalms that actually talk about that experience of the Babylonian exile. It wasn't just an exile, it was war. Mm -hmm. It was empire um, coming to dominate Jerusalem. There's a um, there's a passage where in the psalm it says babies' heads were dashed against rocks. Oh, yeah, right. So what you what you have is you have extreme loss. You have extreme experiences of violence. Then they're picked up, carted, and taken to a land that is not their own, mm-hmm. where they are enslaved mm-hmm. and told by the by their new masters that they were created by the gods to be slaves of the gods. Mm-hmm. So now their new identity is slave. In this, now all of a sudden I'm thinking, I actually kind of relate to this, right? With, yeah. my, with my own ancestry. So then I considered what then is the significance of the fact that these formerly enslaved priests have declared that all humanity is made in the image of God? Because to the Babylonians that wasn't true, right? Yeah. Well, the significance is it's a democratization of power. And they do something even more radical when they say, and let them have dominion. So all humanity was created to exercise that dominion. I love that. That's one of the things that I I loved about your book and just that whole concept. And, um, you know, yesterday I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. We were talking about how especially in this progressive Christianity that we at Forefront are, are really starting to sink into, the difference is, is that we believe in that idea of Imago Dei, the image of God yeah. in people. Yeah. And so I was wondering, because you do a great job of kind of digging into this and explaining it, if you could kind of help us, for those who are thinking about these things, to understand a little bit about good and evil and how, like, if we are made forcefully good and, and if we start out as good people, which might be really contradictory to those who grew up, you know, thinking, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm a sinner, mm-hmm. um, then, then... Talk to us a little bit about what that means about the light and dark in us, in our world. Like, why did God even put those boundaries up to begin with? You talk about the tree of life and, and, evil. and the tree of good and evil. evil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, will you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I think that's a really, those are some really important things that I know a lot of people have questions about. Okay. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. no, this is actually one of my favorite things to talk about is that, and, and it goes back to that very goodness, mm-hmm. the reality that goodness does not exist inside or the Hebrews would not have understood it that way. They would have understood it existing between. So the focus of their understanding would have been relational, not my own. So when we when we say, well, you know, I, I honestly just, I just think we need to break outside of the box because God's not in that box of whether I am good or bad. It's not about that. Mm-hmm. You are flesh. You are human, period. Mm-hmm. Now just kind of sink into that for a minute. All you are is you are human. And what that means is that you reflect the image of God. And what that means is that you were created in a way where you could exercise agency to make decisions that impact the world. And you're created in God's likeness, which means you are not God. God is God. You are not. But that also means that your dominion, the way that you that you reflect dominion, it needs to be also in the likeness of God. Mm-hmm. So 
The goodness or the badness that is connected to us is not inside us. It is in the way that we relate to the world. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, this really, this, this understanding or concept of shalom has truly shifted my understanding of what the nature of sin is. You know, you talk about good and evil. Good and evil is really, it, categorically, it's about what, it's about sin, right? What is sin? Mm-hmm. Because sin is evil, right? Sin is the marker of evil. Well, sin, if, if goodness, if very goodness does not exist necessarily in the thing, but between them, then that means that sin is anything that breaks any of the relationships that God declared very good in the very beginning. That's good. I like that. Right? It really helps explain that. Doesn't yeah. it? Right? So it's not about me being bad or being good. It's about what I do that breaks relationship. And then I can repent. I can change my action. I can actually turn around and do a 360. And it's not that hard. I just don't do what I was doing. And instead, do out of love. Yeah. When you do out of love, well, then you're going to be, you're actually going to be building shalom instead of breaking it. Yeah, that's great. We should talk more about, especially in the season that we're in right now, about how we can do this in our political climate right now. Because <sighs> I know that you have done a lot of work in that, in the political mm-hmm. area, and obviously just in no, issues of you. social justice. Just, what can we do to work towards shalom in this political climate? I mean, mm-hmm. even like people that are voting on one issue alone, what, what have you got to say to them as well? Wow. Well, what I would say is that, first of all, shalom, what it is in its essence, is it is what the kingdom of God smells like. It is what the kingdom of God looks like when you look around and take a look around in the kingdom of God. And it is what the kingdom of God requires of its citizens. Mm-hmm. It's what shalom and being a shalom maker is a mandate under the rule of God. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's the reason why we had the fall is because they came out from under the rule of God and they exercised their own way of getting peace, peace for themselves at the expense of the other. Mm-hmm. So when we think about this election season or any election season or, you know, vote, um, the way we spend our money, the way that we interact with the world outside of our four walls, our doors, our four walls of our church, right? When we think about the way that we interact publicly, It has to be in relationship to how does my action love the other. So I, I take my vote and I ask the question, this is literally just practically for me. I think actually Jesus laid this out for us in Matthew 25. I think what Jesus did in Matthew 25, it was his very last sermon before going to the cross. Mm -hmm. The last time he preached publicly before going to the cross. And in that, in that sermon, he talked about, he said, if you don't, if you do nothing else, make sure that you love the least of these. That's right. Make sure that, and you can see that, that ethic all the way through the Old Testament. You see it all the way through his life, the people that he interacted with, who he made sure that he went and had a visit with. He made sure to talk to the Samaritan woman. He made sure to go to Bartimaeus. He made sure to go to the demoniac. He talked about the Good Samaritan and made the Good Samaritan actually the star of the story, this this hated people. So in his last sermon, Jesus says, before you do anything else, if you do nothing else, make sure you 
love the least of these. And it's not even just like heart love, because what he says is he says, the righteous will say, when did we do all these things for you, Jesus? You know, oh, yo, yo, Jesus. And, and yo, 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 Jesus will actually say, you know, yo, 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 uh, you did it when you did it for the least of these. Mm -hmm. And that word righteous is key because the word righteous there can only be interpreted one way. People, people often say in two ways, but that's not true. There's another word that can be interpreted in two ways that is justice, like justice or holiness. This is not this word. Mm -hmm. This word has one meaning, just. Mm -hmm. The just ones will say, when did we give you bread? When did we give you water? When did we visit you in prison? When did we care for you when you were sick? When did we make sure that as an immigrant you were cared for? Yeah. When did we cover you when you were naked? That's what, that's what that text says. And because we're talking about justice, we're talking about equity. If you actually parse that word and like split, it, split the hairs, it's actually talking, it says, those of equitable action and character. You can't talk about equity without talking about systems, yeah. without talking about the way things work. So really what Jesus is, really what he's saying is, it's not just go give a sandwich, it's take a look around and see who in your community is having an inequitable distribution of food. Mm -hmm. And we see that actually come to bear in Acts, in Acts 6, when the Hellenist widows have an inequitable distribution of the food. And they, they take care of that just like that, that quick. Mm -hmm. Where among you is there an inequitable distribution of water? Who among you is getting an inequitable distribution of interactions with the justice system? Somebody say amen, hello, mm -hmm. right? That's right. So that's what you need to do. As the just ones, you level playing fields. Mm -hmm. As the just ones, you do justice. As the just ones, you repair the broken relationship between peoples and between the people and the systems that govern them. Yeah. And as the top, what what is it, one to three percent of the most wealthy in the world, yes. we are in a position of power. And yes. I just want to lift a quote from your book. And you were talking about how Joseph in Genesis, uh, how God called him to use his power, mm -hmm. his position of authority. You wrote... Joseph, from his position in government, demonstrated that God wants to use faith-filled people to bless all of society, to feed the hungry, to house the homeless, to father the fatherless, to bless the prisoner, and to bless whole nations. And that's everything you were talking about just now. That's exactly. So I wanted to ask, um, how can, if you can be explicit about what we can do in New York City, for those of us living in New York City, and for the rest of the country, for that mm -hmm. matter, what can we do specifically to to start to embrace yeah. Shalom? Well, with regard to the, let's start with the election season since we just have a month, right, for this next right. until voting day, right? Mar no, it's actually less than a month now. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say think about your vote in relationship to how it can love the least. Who are you going to vote for who has the platform that will love the least most? It's not who has the perfect platform. It's who has the platform and the plan and the strategy that has the most capacity to love the least of these. Does yeah. that make sense? Yes. That's And identifying that's who exactly is. Who is that? Are the least I mean, of these. who is it? I'm not going to tell you who it is. You have to figure that out for yourself, but sure. it's not hard to do. <laughs> I don't think not this year. Right. So I'm, you know, a little hint, hint, but that's, that's all I'm going to do. Right. So, so. 
who who has that capacity and who who has that vision? Yeah. And then the second piece that I would say is when you're not just talking about people, but like in California, right, they have propositions. And in, in Los Angeles, and not just Los Angeles, sorry, in, in New York City, you guys have city councils that you that you appoint. You have council members that have agendas. Think about the agendas and mayors, right? Like you have your mayor, you have, and local local politics is almost the most important because that is really what structures daily life mm-hmm. for most people in America. So ask the question, who among you in New York City of the city council people or the mayor actually has a plan that is going to bless the least of these? And then what I would say, the next thing you have to do is go and listen to the people who are actually carrying the heaviest burden of oppressive structures and ask them what they need. Ask them who they want us to vote for. Mm -hmm. Ask them the policies that they are pushing for and then align ourselves, stand next to them. And when we go into the voting booth, go in with them on our shoulder Mm -hmm. and let them pull the lever for us. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that you brought that up because actually for those of us listeners that don't know, I'm a person of color mm-hmm. and I just joined a staff where it's I'm the only person of color and this whole conversation of white privilege and those that are in power and what mm-hmm. they're supposed to do mm-hmm. got me thinking about what what is my responsibility in all of this? Yes. And so I want to ask you as a person of color and for our other listeners who are as well, my husband is black and we talk about this all the time. Mm-hmm. So what, what should we do? What can we do to bring shalom? What's our responsibility? We know what p- people in the position of power should do. Mm-hmm. We know what people of privilege should do, but what can we do? Okay. So there's this there's this image that came it became very clear to me um, as I was as actually I was writing chapter nine in the book, which is about race, right? Shalom and race. Mm-hmm. And it's the image of what does it look like for what would it look like? What would be required to happen in order for all of us to truly stand fully in the image of God? and be properly related to each other and God together. What would that look like? Well, I think that one of the things that it would look like is that in America, you have to, you can't, you can't just pontificate. You gotta go into actual real health history and current events, right? Because that's where theology gets feet. That's where it actually becomes real. And it's not just up here. In America, and not just in America, actually all over the world, but let's talk here, because this is where we are. The way that we shaped our life together, the fundamental way that life was shaped together, and that is the nature of politics, is through race. Race or politics is simply the conversation about how the polis will live together. That's all politics is. That's at its heart. That's what it is. That's what it's supposed to be anyway, right? It's not supposed to be about partisanship. That came later. Politics is about how the polis, the people will live together. Well, back in three, okay, you want to go way back, 360 BC, Plato wrote the Republic. And in his pontifications about how the Republic should live together, how the polis would live together, he actually crafted the concept of race. And he said, there are different races in the world. Some people are made out of gold. Others are made out of silver. 
Some are made of copper and others are made of iron. And he had a couple others in there too. He said, depending on the metal that people are made of, they will serve the Republic in particular ways. Mm-hmm. So gold, yes, yeah. gold people will serve the Republic in this way. Copper people will serve the Republic in this way. Iron will, and that, and blah, blah, blah. He said the races should never mix because that would, you know, mix up and disturb society, the order of society. Hello, somebody, mm-hmm. right? So, but he also didn't necessarily have a hierarchy of value in that. He just said, this is, this is how it works. Mm-hmm. But the hierarchy came beginning with the church. Of course it did. Of course it did, right? Of course it did. Mm-hmm. So the hierarchy came beginning with the church with the Pontifex Romanix, which is now known as the Doctrine of Discovery. It was the first bifurcation that I could find anyway of, of a hierarchy of human, human value where the, you know, the Pope one day was sitting there and, a, and an explorer came up to him and said, yo, 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 Pope, you know, I'm about to go exploring and I need you to sign something to give me the ability to go do that. And he said, sure, I'll do that. And I'll one better you. I'll actually give you the ability to, if you see a land that doesn't have a lot of stone, because stone is a symbol of civilization. And if you see a land that, you know, basically lives like us, then you can't claim it. But if they don't have stone and they don't live like us, you know, Go ahead and claim it because that's a sign that they're not civilized. And so they are not called by God to exercise dominion. Wow. We are called by God to exercise dominion because we are civilized. And so he gave him this paper and that's how we got South Africa. And that's how we got the United States of America. Mm -hmm. And that's how we got all of South America and Central America. That's how we got it. Mm -hmm. That's how we got it. And Australia and New Zealand, and Papua New Guinea. That's how we got it. It was the church. And it was a false understanding of dominion and who gets it. And then, then we had this great botanist, Linnaeus, right? So Linnaeus actually says, he says, hey, I just discovered kingdom, Kingdom phylum order class genus species, right? So he he discovered that dealio. I remember learning that in seventh grade, you know? Well, he said, hey, if this works with fauna, it, maybe it'll work with, human, with humanity too. Mm-hmm. Let's put humanity in an order. And he did. And so in 1746, I believe, he put humanity in an order that had, of course, white, and this is literally what he did, white Europeanus, um, yellow Asiatus, red Americanus, black Africanus on the bottom. And so bad science then began to uh, embed this understanding of a colorized hierarchy, racial hierarchy. The Pope divided it by savage or civilized. Now we we begin to parse, you know, who is the most civilized, who is the most savage. On the bottom of the savage line was blacks, black Africans. Mm -hmm. And at the top of the civilized were white Europeans. So that's bad science, 1746. Well, within, what is that, almost 40 years, um, we get get the three-fifths compromise. Now it's codified into law that black people are only three-fifths of a human being. Wow. (laughs) Oh, that makes me cringe. Did you know that? No. No, even as you were speaking, I remember um, being being taught uh, Mm -hmm. in Australia when 
Captain Cook first came mm, and yes. how how they felt that that it was okay to take that land oh, because yeah. the the Aboriginal people were classified as flora and fauna, yes. not even as people, but as flora as and flora. Yeah. They were fl- they were fauna, and I can't imagine looking at my own children who are half black as three fifths as a human of a human being. Yeah, but Thomas Jefferson did because he had he had half black children. And he and he enslaved them. They were his slaves. Unbelievable. See, so what's my point? My point is not white people are bad. That's not my point. My point is that at some point, well, apparently way, way back, 360 BC, we had in Western civilization this idea that snowballed and began to shape the way the polis lives together. And so at the founding of our nation, before the founding of our nation, actually in 1660 and 1680, we start getting judicial um, rulings that that change slavery from a, a system of indentured servitude that a white person, a native person, or a black person could be encaptured in, and instead transitions into a race-based colorized system mm-hmm. that declares that black people alone were created to be slaves, right? So if this is what we've been soaking in for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. and then, okay, I forgot, gotta keep going because we're not quite done. <laughs> so in, what's that, 1787, you get Three-Fifths Compromise. Three years later in 1790, you get the Immigration Act of 1790, and the Immigration Act of 1790 declares that the only people who can become naturalized citizens are white oh, wow. people, yeah. white men in particular, and their property which is their women and children, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, so what am I saying here? What I'm saying is that in our founding and for centuries, for millennia, we have thought of the world in a hierarchical structure. We've thought of ourselves and shaped life that way. Yeah. And we've shaped life. We've shaped our governance. We've shaped our politics. Our politics at the core was framed first around the question of race. Mm -hmm. So what does it look like for us to actually all be human? Let's go back to that question. I think that for white folks in America, there is often an assumption of, we call it white privilege, but I don't actually even like to go there because privilege is actually something you give to children who are good, right? Like you give mm-hmm. privileges. It's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a feeling of, I deserve this, I've earned this when you talk about privilege, right? There's kind of an assumption in the background. Mm-hmm. But it's not, it's not earned at all. That's the whole point of this. It has yeah. nothing to do with yeah. earning at all. It's simply a declaration that the government made that these are the people that we will deem white. And the entire 19th century, even into the mid-20th century, people were going to the civil to the Supreme Court, up through the court system, all the way to the Supreme Court to prove that they were white. Why? Because they wanted the ability to exercise dominion on the land. Mm-hmm. And our, our documents said the only people who could do that were white folk. Mm-hmm. The last one is in, the last one I saw was 1920-something, where a Japanese man tried to argue all the way up to the Supreme Court that he was white. And of course they said, not actually not of course, but they said, uh, no, you're not. And so they, they slammed him back down and said, no, you're not. And, and so that's, that question's been answered. No, they're not. Which really means, no, you do not have the full capacity to exercise dominion on this land. Mm-hmm. This is why I think it's so important that we understand 
our history, especially, you know, definitely as a country, but mm-hmm. also especially as a church. Yes. For everyone who's listening right now who's struggling with kind of letting go of the ideas you grew up with and moving towards a more progressive and loving God, does it challenge you to understand this history differently and to understand where some of this stuff comes from, mm-hmm. where the power is? in the decisions that the church has made throughout hundreds of years and it challenges us about where we're going to go in the future as well Mm -hmm. so i just want to take a second to plug one of your other books because i got a lot of this from reading forgive us um, that you Mm co-authored and it's just full of of history so if you were you know if you're feeling compelled by any of the things we've been talking about definitely pick up forgive us and it really digs into lament and how important it is for us to ask for forgiveness from the people that we've wronged too Amen. And you know, one of the ways to repent, I mean, think about it. This is the great thing about, this is the very good news. The very good news is that we don't have to be stuck in this. We don't have to. That's right. We can just repent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can just now, now here's the thing. The system was always, or not, I shouldn't say always. At this point, the system simply does declare us, parse us by race. And that, those parsings, even in the census, the census is used in order to distribute resources. It actually literally is used that way, right? So I think part of what it would look like for everyone to come and just simply be human is literally to renounce the categorization, the power that race gives you to work towards your own benefit as opposed to those of the other. Yeah. Right? So that's, that's the power that race gives, is the power to work for your own collective your own race mm-hmm. as opposed to the races of others and to see each other as competing. Mm-hmm. But what would it look like if you simply were all human and you were working for the good of humanity? Yeah, that's something that I'm, I really want to teach my children, mm-hmm. that living in New York City, living in the city anyway, in any city, mm-hmm. you're always driven by fear, fear of the unknown, fear of what you read in the newspapers. Read Well, no one reads the newspapers anymore, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just, do, what are you talking about? <laughs> fear of what people write on Facebook and what you see on the news. Mm-hmm. And so I want to ask, because I'm the children's ministry director and we're always faced mm. with several instances in which we can exercise and live out shalom, mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could talk about ways as parents we can raise up the next generation to embrace this idea of shalom. That's really great. And especially in light of what we were just talking about with race and and the ways that we've constructed our lives together. Um, Let's go back and put a period on the end of the last sentence. So what it would look like is it would look like white folks repenting of claiming, I believe, the status of not just fully human, but actually little g gods. Because in, in Genesis 1, the only one who can speak and so things are, is God. Mm-hmm. But in our history, white folks have declared that things are, and so they have been. They declared that the aboriginals were plant, mm-hmm. and so they were treated as if they were plants. They declared that black people were three-fifths of a human being, and so we lived under that oppression for, you know, a hundred years from that point, right? Yeah. Um, or nearly a hundred. Well, actually, more than a hundred when you count when you count Jim Crow as well. And actually, two hundred years before that, um, when you count all of this, the history of slavery before we became a nation. So it's the it's the repenting from the belief that as white people we were created with a special call 
to rule the world with a special call and a unique call to steward the world. Mm-hmm. What would it look like for those who the system now calls white to say, I am simply human? And then to answer your question from earlier, it, the call for people of color is actually to step fully into the image of God within us and allow it to help us to raise our backs up and to stand up straight and tall, recognizing that we have been created with the call of God and the capacity to exercise dominion. That's so true. Right? Yeah. So I was on the island, I was on Robben Island in in January. Robben Island is the the prison island where Mandela was held for 18 of his 27 years in prison. And on this island, we had a little experiment. We had people of color mostly who were faith leaders from all over the world. And then there were a number of um, white folks who were there, white faith leaders who were there mostly from South Africa, but then a few from America as well. And we had been having all these like aha moments throughout the week that we were together. And then one of the last days we had Um, We were asked, everybody was asked to participate if they wanted to in an exercise of ordering the thoughts so that we could actually kind of put some order to all of these aha moments we had. So over lunch, a group of folks volunteered to go and help order our thoughts. The only people who volunteered of color were from America. All of the black South Africans didn't, there were no other, there were no black South Africans in the room Mm -hmm. who were helping to order the conversation, set the parameters for the conversation. And when you set the parameters, that's power. Yeah. When you, those who shape the conversation shape the world, right? Yeah. So they didn't. And we kind of got wind of that. We realized that that was happening. That And even for the folks of color who were in the room, they were kind of honestly getting kind of nudged away from the wall by the white folks who were so excited about ordering the world. Mm-hmm. And they were taking our people of color opinions that were up on the wall and shifting them, moving them around. We were like, oh, yeah. heck no. Like, we're not even, like, we are from America. We had our civil rights movement. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? We're not taking that. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and so, you know, we went and we stopped. We stopped the exercise and we actually brought this to the floor and brought it to the group and said, do you realize what just happened here? And there was a black South African man who actually lives in the black township now and works for a group that's very much like Sojourners in Cape Town. And he stood up and he said, I just realized what's happened. What this revealed was that we have been so conditioned to actually sit back and allow others to lead us That when given the opportunity to lead, we didn't. Yeah, you are so right. It's so hard to break down those lies that you've been told for so long Mm -hmm. and to just just take up that place that's rightfully yours. Yes. The voice that's rightfully yours and not think that you're second to someone else. To take up space in the world and to not apologize for it. That's right. That's right. So we're really excited about tonight, um, our second event with FCQ. 
If you guys want to, those of you who are listening, want to be more involved, definitely pick up a copy of Lisa's book. Talk about it. Get involved. Um, you know, our small groups at Forefront are about to start reading the book together. Awesome. Yep. We've Woo-hoo! got a whole guide going for it. That's so, so yeah. Great. So if you listening want to jump in and be involved in community and talk to others about this, come check out Forefront in NYC. Lisa, just to finish things up, do you have any kind of closing words that you want to leave with people before we close? You can find out more about what it, you know, how to get connected with me in the future um, and to follow on Facebook. Um, I have a Facebook profile page. Please like it. Um, I have a website, lisasharonharper.com. You can sign up for, um, for newsletters and updates and things like that. Um, and then also, of course, on Twitter at Lisa S. Harper period. That, that's Twitter, at Lisa S. Harper. So there you go. And then, of course, it's Sojourners at Sojo.net. That's where most of my writing goes. And and then I also also publish in other places, but you can always find everything I do at Sojourners. And you have several books out, actually. Mm-hmm. So yeah, check out all of the, what she's done. It's great. Yeah. The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, Lisa. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. It's It has been. It's been awesome. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to our episode today. Join us for our final Faith Culture Questions event on Sunday morning, November 6th with Brian McLaren, part of our regular worship services. This event is free, but you do need to reserve a seat, so you can go to ForefrontNYC.com FCQ to get your ticket today. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.